0: Part of this episode will be discussing the Treaty of Tordesillas and the Papal Bull of 1493. There's another podcast out there that just did a three-part series on these subjects. It's the History of North America podcast hosted by Mark Vinette. And obviously it has a lot of overlap with my podcast. But whereas my podcast is a long, meandering series of rants that are clearly signals to the outside world that I'm mentally breaking down during this coronavirus pandemic. His episodes are short, well-produced chunks of information and digestible bits with great production and a really crispy, clean sound. So I'm going to let Mark tell you about his podcast in his own words, and then we're going to get back to the show. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico, from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. The History of North America podcast series is an incredible historical adventure that chronicles the thrilling, action-packed tale of a continent. I invite you to come along for the ride. The history books often divide the world into two halves. You have the old world and the new world. And the meeting of those two worlds is the beginning of what makes the world today. And yet the whole affair is far more murky than you would ever expect. In the 19th century, Washington Irving wrote a fictional biography of Christopher Columbus. The most pervasive fictional detail in that story, of course, is that people at the time believed the earth was flat. And that the religious scholars told Columbus, you will sail off the edge of the earth if you go in that direction. Don't sail westward, you'll just fall off. Not a single word of that is true. People knew at the time, 1492, that the Earth was spherical. This is one of many misconceptions. Now, beyond Washington Irving, just open a textbook and look at the early explorers of the Atlantic, of of North America, and even South America. You'll see probably five or six different colored lines. There'll be a red line, there'll be a yellow line, and those lines will be coming from Portugal, Spain, France, England. And you'll see Cabot. You'll see Verrazano. You'll see Amerigo Vespucci. You'll see Christopher Columbus. But what you won't see is the hundred other people who also took those journeys, sometimes shortly before, and definitely shortly after, the explorers on the map. Often the ones who made the official discoveries, the map-worthy discoveries, were working for... His Royal Highness. They were the official expeditions. But for every official expedition, there were dozens or hundreds of private sailors going out to make money on various ventures, coming back home, and not revealing to the outside world where they got the things they were selling. It's now a accepted historical truth that the Norse certainly made it to the North American continent, or at least to Newfoundland, just outside of it. And being in Newfoundland, they probably had some expeditions to the mainland. And certainly the Norse tales would back that up with a little creative interpretation. Around a thousand years ago, roughly, the Norse spread out from Europe, and they settled Iceland, and they settled Greenland, and they had a settlement on Newfoundland. But because of climate, hostile natives, and probably a half dozen other reasons, over the centuries, the Norse started to retract. Their colony on Newfoundland abandoned and the settlements in Greenland were also abandoned probably by the year 1450. Without maps, all the land west of Iceland became myth, written down in Germanic works that the Latin countries of Europe, who will spearhead these explorations, will have no access to or awareness of. The historian Samuel Eliot Morrison points out that around the year 1500. When the Portuguese are sailing along the coast of Greenland, they map it as a new discovery. They have no awareness that Europeans had ever been there before. At least that's the official story. The most credible claims of pre-Columbian, pre-Columbus, exploration of the New World by Europeans who lived during Columbus's time... Uh, actually has nothing to do with the Caribbean or South America or anything within what we consider the Latin American sphere of the Americas. It comes from the North Atlantic. It comes from the North American continent and has a lot to do with fish. In the 1400s or the 15th century, the population of Europe was booming once again. It had recovered from the series of plagues, most notably the Black Plague. Feeding all these people eventually became an issue. Up until relatively recently, food scarcity was a problem for most of the Earth's population. And even today, there are still billions who are uh, constantly one harvest away from near starvation or starvation uh, level calorie intake. Large scale fishing operations off the coastline and then deep into the waters of the Atlantic became a major business and a necessity to keep everyone alive alive. Fish became a cheap source of protein, and it was also not considered meat for a long time. And so all those religious holidays where you need to abstain from meat, you could have fish. Being such a lucrative commodity, eventually by the 1470s into the 1480s, the Hanseatic League started to monopolize all the good fishing grounds, especially for cod. These conditions, uh, some modern scholars believe, is what pushed private fishermen Out further west, closer to North America. The author Mark Kurlansky, who has written a book called Cod, is one of the biggest proponents of this theory. The primary argument here being that these private fishermen, not in the league, were pushed far enough west, away from the league, that they actually ran against the islands of North America, or North America itself, the continent proper. And there are bits of evidence. I, I I wouldn't call it a whole piece of evidence. There are bits, references, little whispers to back up this notion that Columbus was preceded, at least by a decade, by unnamed people looking to make profit, selling cod. Kurlansky and many of the scholars of the Basque culture claim that the Basque found their way to the Grand Banks off of Newfoundland and the North American continent long before Columbus ever set sail for the Caribbean. Other than the Basque, the fishermen coming out of Bristol, England, and then the fishermen down in Portugal, uh, probably have the best case for claiming they were there before Columbus. There is a single 1481 reference of ships from Bristol leaving for a land of Brazil, which was a mythical land to the west of Europe, not the Brazil we know today. Although the names are the same for a reason. These ships brought salt for preserving cod. The authors Thomas Croft and John Jay bring up certain legal documents from the 1480s. I believe this one's out of Portugal, although I didn't write it down. Very irresponsible of me. 1480s, about ships that came from the West with a bunch of dried cod to sell. Being that they were dried, it implied that the fish was taken to land at some point in order to dry in the sun, with salt added to it to preserve it. Now, that could only be done if you're in some other territory, and so they were charged with importing foreign fish. However, they argued that they were in no other nation, but in some foreign, distant, unclaimed territory in the Atlantic. And so they got away with it. Now, they could have been lying, and the fish could have been dried off the coast of England, off the coast of France. Or they could have been telling the truth, and they dried that cod somewhere off the coast of North America. Now, there were two ways to preserve cod at this time. There was a dry method and a wet method. The wet method goes back further. You gut the fish on the deck of the ship, throw the guts overboard, do what you want with them. You store the fish below. You store it in a bunch of salt. But the dry method actually became the preferred way. So you get the fish, you're going to gut them, do all, do all that nasty stuff I don't want to talk about. Then you go ashore and you put them on racks in the sun, salt them there, and then they get dried out to literally be like a chip or like a shingle. You do it until the fish is, is beyond jerky. It's, it's going to be like a rock. It's something you're going to have to boil later to reconstitute, but it's going to preserve really well and make for really good fish soup later. This became the preferred method, and all these people who are proponents of a pre-Columbian European fish, uh, fisherman discovery of North America, they embrace this as the impetus to get those fishermen out of the boats and onto the land of North America or islands around it like, again, Newfoundland. All of these references are scant, some of them might be made up, and many could be outright lies. There is, however, one letter written to Christopher Columbus... It was written on behalf of the merchants of Bristol, England, through a sailor named John Day, who had business interests in England and in Spain. It's actually written to a Lord Grand Admiral, who everyone supposes is Christopher Columbus. It's dated to December 1497, January 1498, around there. It claims that before Columbus discovered those islands in the Caribbean that men from Bristol had discovered the land of El Brazil. And the letter specifically says, as you are already aware. Meaning that John Day, writing this letter, believed that the Grand Admiral already knew of expeditions to the West hitting land before that Grand Admiral, presumably Columbus, left on his 1492 expedition. Anyway, that's what's in the letter. Now let's get irresponsible with the interpretation. So Now scholars, uh, some scholars believe, that John Day, having interests in both nations, may have been a spy of sorts between England and Spain. And John Day might have been the source of the information of lands to the west, or the ability to find lands by going west uh, from Bristol to Columbus himself. So John Day... Confirmed to Columbus that you could go west and hit land. However, the cynical explanation for this is, of course, the merchants of Bristol wanted their claim to go on record whether or not it was true. This was the very early portion of the Age of Discovery. And if the English could shed some doubt on the Spanish finding the New World first, it would mean that the English had some legal, in the European sense, claim to those lands to the west. So there was a lot of motivation to make up something and send it to Columbus. And so again, I'm, the jury's out. I have no idea. I'm not taking a side on this, but it's interesting to explore. It seems like during this time, for every answer, there's two questions. But the Portuguese also have their own proud traditions of claiming they beat Columbus. Many there will tell you that chualvez Rio actually discovered Newfoundland or Newfoundland in 1473, decades before Columbus came around. But it's possible that his sons, who were all explorers and shortly behind Columbus, concocted a story, or at least the community he was from concocted this story, in order to be Columbus, or in order for their expeditions and explorations and discoveries to be firmly within the control of the Portuguese and not the Spanish. Again, I'm not taking sides. But it is known, within the same year, Columbus finds his way west. The king of Portugal sent explorers northwest. And while Columbus was exploring what will be called the West Indies, the Portuguese were finding Newfoundland and Labrador and Greenland all over again. And when they were there, did they find independent merchants, fishermen from Bristol, did they find the Basque there? Did they find private Portuguese operations? We don't know. And there's a very good reason why they would never tell us. If you're working for a king, you would have every incentive to say nobody else was there from Europe. And if you were a king and you found out that your expeditions found other people there from Europe, you yourself wouldn't want that knowledge to be leaked out. Again, the right of discovery comes into play. And so we're going to leave speculation, at least for a while. Let's move to the other side of this line. 1492. It's going to come and go. The old world and the new world have now officially flowed into one another. And now the fireworks are going to begin. Spain and Portugal having a huge head start on everybody else, at least officially, at the state level. Not private people going out, doing their thing, and not telling anyone what they're doing. This is sponsored by the king. We're mapping this, we're claiming this, we're incorporating this into our empire. Portugal, of course, being number one for their exploration south along the coast of Africa and east. When Spain comes along and they make these official discoveries west, all of a sudden that throws a monkey wrench into everything. Portugal's like, hey, I thought I was the guy in Europe who goes out and takes over stuff. Mind you, at this time, with the Reconquista just happening, I believe I said that right, the the Muslims being sent packing back out of the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, right next to each other, are the most zealot Catholic countries that the Pope has. And it is imperative that these two get along, because they're extremely useful right now. And so in 1493, there's a papal bull that essentially divides the heathen world, so everything outside of Europe, between the Spanish and the Portuguese, to keep a peace. Now, the original line is drawn somewhere halfway between the Portuguese Azores and the discoveries of Columbus in the West Indies. Now, this line only ran from the one side of the North Pole to the one side of the South Pole, so we're not cutting an orange in half, we're just cutting half an orange. So where the boundary between these two claims would be in the East is undetermined. We're not going to get to that. That's, that's way in the future. But right now, somewhere in the Atlantic is an invisible line in 1493 where the Pope says everything that away is Spain, everything that away is ripe for the picking for the Portuguese. Portugal liked the intention but didn't quite like where the line was drawn. So the very next year, 1494, Spain and Portugal meet in the city of Tordesillas and they make the Treaty of Tordesillas. Not very creative people back then. And the new line that they drew was about 46 degrees, 37 minutes west. This line would be adjusted again in 1506, 100 leagues further west to legitimize Portugal's claim over Brazil. Now you might be saying to yourself, well, what does this have to do with the history of America or North America or anywhere close to that? Well, I'm going to tell you right now if you'd be patient, first of all. But at the ma- in the maps at the time, because... They had a hard time keeping track of longitude. Newfoundland was actually on the Portuguese side. Now, if you draw that line today, you can see clearly that North America would be within the Spanish realm, according to the Pope and the two respective countries. But at the time, Newfoundland was placed incorrectly. And so the Portuguese believed that Newfoundland and everything east of there was within their realm. And so I welcome you to Portuguese North America. In the very late 1490s, we know for certain that João Fernandes Lavrador made expeditions of the North Atlantic and actually rediscovered Greenland. And for a while, that became Labrador or Lavrador until mapmakers rediscovered that the Norse had already discovered Greenland and called it Greenland. And then in which case, the name Lavrador became Labrador on the mainland of North America. Confusing, I know. But it's evidence to this day of these early Portuguese explorations of areas that'll become parts of the English colonial empires and the French colonial empire. In 1499, Lavrador received a patent for these islands that he found and was legally able to claim them in the name of the Portuguese crown. Again, because this is a royal mission, we have documentation of it. So this is why guys like him end up in the maps, because he's not a private trader doing his own business and keeping his mouth shut. But Lavrador's patent is overtaken, again, by the Cortariel Riel family, who we talked about before. Being members of nobility, they probably squeezed him out. Now, Lavrador, it's known that he probably wasn't very happy with this arrangement, and he defected to England. In fact, he went to Bristol. But at this point, he disappears. We don't know what happened to him. But the Cortariel Riel family, they would continue these expeditions... And in 1500, Gaspard Cotariel claimed Newfoundland for Portugal. And he called it Terra Verde. But this is where our story takes a dark turn. The land now known as Labrador, not then, of course, as I just discussed, he called Slave Land. He had been kidnapping natives from this area and probably from Newfoundland uh, for a couple years now, as his patent in 1500 mentioned that he'd been there before. In our last episode, we mentioned how the Balefoot very quickly Uh, became afraid of foreigners. And it probably began, if not with the Norse, it began at this moment, when the Portuguese began enslaving natives. Despite his evil intentions, because the natives of the New World didn't have any resistance to Old World diseases, 90% of those he took captive would die on the journey back to the Old World. And I don't believe any of his captives were ever brought to sail. However, I couldn't tell you their ultimate fate as happens so often when Europeans kidnap natives bring them back to the Old World, that seems to be the end of the trail, as far as records are concerned. One thing important to the story of New France, however, is that on the 1506 cantarini Rossellelli map, I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong, it mentions the Corte Rio brothers, Gaspar and his, uh, his younger brothers, and it mentions that they saw the St. Lawrence. It's, it's on there, around 1500 to 1501. And so the entryway into the North American continent was perhaps first spotted by the Portuguese but their discovery of Newfoundland would not be a first as we know that John Cabot was there several years beforehand on the part of England but the Cortorils they would have a very similar fate to those who they took captive of Gaspar Cortoril towards the end of 1501 went missing his small fleet went out about two-thirds of his ships returned, and he was on one of the ones that was never seen again. His brother, Miguel Cortariel, went out to look for him. He got permission from the king of Portugal to do so. And he, too, went missing the very next season. This would be the year 1502. And then in 1503, when it was clear that he wasn't coming back, a third brother, Vasco Riel, asked the king, "'Please, let me go find my brothers.'" Although they were slave traders, they're still his brothers. And so there is a connection there. There are feelings there. He wants to go find them. And the king smartly says no. And with that, the Corte Real saga of North America is over. The important legacies of which, possibly the discovery of the St. Lawrence and the Portuguese claim to Newfoundland, which on their maps they called the land of the king of Portugal. But in the decades afterward the Portuguese would still be operating private fishing enterprises off the coast of North America. They're still part of this story. This story where New France, as we're going to come to know it, almost became New Portugal. And the closest that the Portuguese Empire ever came to such an endeavor was under João Alvarez Fagundes. The Portuguese king in the 1520s gave him the right to claim any land he could find in the name of the crown and to be governed by himself. Where he explored, and eventually asked for, was the land around Newfoundland. That entire area. The area just east of the St. Lawrence. And then we get back into murky waters. Just like those pre-Columbian claims. Fagungis planned to start a colony. In the New World. In the North American sphere. In the 1520s. There are scant records, but they do indicate that he had made preparations for colonists, supplies, livestock. But the big question was, was the colony ever actually founded? Now, there are some vague references and letters written by sailors that, yes, there was a colony, and that the the colonists may have moved from one location to another, uh, depending on the climate. Maybe they settled first in Greenland and found it inhospitable and move further south, further west, further southwest. We're not exactly sure. But many scholars are certain that the colony went beyond the planning stages and an actual attempt was made. This would be an agricultural community uh, used for a base of operations for these Portuguese fishermen. Later writers in the early 17th century will mention the presence of cattle on these small islands off the coast of North America and They would claim that the Portuguese left them there, that there was a failed colony. It seems to have been an open secret, and yet no one can tie down the location. Could be in Labrador, could be Newfoundland, could be on Sable Island. All of these are prime suspects, but we don't know. We don't know where it was, how long it survived. Some people claim as late as the 1570s. This would be a colony that was around for 50 years. We hear references about colonists, but we don't know who who they were. Uh, what they were all about, what were their reasons, if they were compelled to go, or if they went on their own volition. And we don't know if the colony ever actually existed at all. It could have died in the planning stages. It's a complete mystery. It's Roanoke times ten. And it's very little explored, very little researched. And part of the reason is, is that there's just nothing to chew on. There's almost... it almost doesn't exist at all. In fact, it might not exist at all. And so... You know, before my head starts to fill with strange theories, I'm just going to move on. The last Portuguese explorer of note would be Estavo Gomes, who lobbied heavily to be the leader of the expedition to sail around the world by finding a passage to the southwest. He lost, ultimately, to Magellan, but was hired nonetheless as one of his underlings. When Magellan finally, finally found what is now called the Strait of Magellan, down towards the very tippy-top end of South America... Gomis helped lead a mutiny against Magellan, and he lost some of his fleet, as Gomis and others sailed back to Spain. Where, of course, for being mutineers, they were locked up. But at this time, mutineers had a, a special card in their pocket they could play sometimes. Normally, a mutiny was a sure death sentence. However, if you held certain geographic value, your knowledge of the world and places you could go were unique to you and your fellow mutineers... You could get out of a death sentence and find yourself into a new job. Gomez convinced the Spanish that Magellan's way was too distant. It was too far away. It was too much traveling. You might as well just go around the Horn of Africa. Forget about it. And he said, there's probably a better way to go. And we got to look points north for a western passage or a northwestern passage along the North American continent. He did this so convincingly. He talked himself out of a death sentence out of a prison term and into a job. Spain, of course, was under pressure because their spies in France inf- were informing them of this expedition being organized by an Italian man by the name of Verrazzano. And so Gomez intended to leave before Verrazzano, but Verrazzano actually beat him. But Gomez never ran into Verrazano or saw evidence of him. As far as he knew, he was the first one to be mapping this area. So he went up the coast of what is now the United States. But North America didn't have the treasures of Mexico or South America. The massive silver mines and the plentiful gold mines. Or even by this time, the huge cities like Mexico City, Nochotlan. Gomez had nothing to show for his expedition other than a map and a bunch of territories that seemingly had nothing of value. And so what did he do? He took slaves. Just like Corto Río, he took natives from the coast. It's known that he kidnapped uh, members of the Abenaki tribe. In the vicinity of what's now New England, probably Maine, Gomes, on his trip back to Spain, sent word out that I have a ship full of slaves for sale. Now the language barrier, slight as it was, between the Spanish and the Portuguese, the Spanish came to think that he had cloves for sale. And when the Spanish people showed up to buy cloves and found him peddling human flesh, they were disgusted. And the crown forced him to free all of those slaves. And so the Iberian powers, after this time, lose interest in the North Atlantic and most of North America above Florida and Mexico. There just wasn't anything there that would be as lucrative as the gold, the silver, the mass amounts of people to control, and of course later on the cash crops they could extract from latitudes further south. However, this area will become the entryway into the epic colonial enterprise that will become new France. And the greatest competitor that France had in this area was of course England and later on Great Britain. And we find that they had competing claims with the French for most of North America. And it was all thanks to one guy from an Italian state named Giovanni Coboto, which you might know better and history will remember better as John Cabot. Now, John Cabot was a contemporary with Christopher Columbus. And in fact, before Columbus's faithful expedition of 1492, he probably was slightly more prestigious. Giovanni Caboto probably had conversations with the King of Spain, and he became the designer of the new harbor at Valencia. These plans, of course, would be scuttled after Columbus's discovery. Mark Kurlansky, the author of Cod, who I mentioned before, speculates that... Giovanni Caboto may have actually been there when Christopher Columbus returned, and he may have been part of these celebrations, or at least witnessed them, and had to see Columbus basking in all the praise and glory of bringing Spain a new possession, whereas he had just rotted away in a harbor. Now, before working in Spain, he worked in, you guessed it, Bristol, England. And after this whole Columbus episode, he went right back to Bristol, now Bristol is in England, and the king of England at the time, King Henry VII, once refused to sponsor Columbus in 1489. So you have two men here who are just eating crow. Giovanni Capoto, now in England, now known as John Cabot, and the king himself. Both of them feeling like they missed out on the opportunity of a lifetime. And so in 1496, the eager king gives Cabot a commission to sail west. That very same year, he set off on his expedition, but had to turn around. The bad conditions sent him back to port. But the next year, 1497, he set off again. The name of his ship was the Matthew, and he had just a crew of 18. Now the route he took far more northernly than Columbus had a better chance of hitting Asia than Columbus ever did. In both cases, of course, the American continents would get in the way. But Cabot will actually get around 2,000 miles closer to the mainland of Asia than Columbus would ever get. And once he made it safely across the Atlantic, he most certainly spotted Newfoundland. But the actual location where he made a landing is disputed. Could have been Newfoundland itself, Labrador, Nova Scotia, Cape Breton Island. Any way you look at it, there's a, a decent chance he never actually set foot on the continent itself, but maybe an island off the coast of the North American continent. Either way... England used this one expedition as the basis for their claim for North America. This would be their first recorded uh, basis for any claim. Interestingly enough, Cabot reported no direct contact with any other Europeans or natives, which has caused a lot of controversy. As it would seem that the natives along the east coast of what is now Canada and the United States were awfully friendly to Europeans at first. So the fact that he saw zero Native Americans or First Nations people would imply that perhaps other Europeans already set a reputation, which would mean Europeans were already in the area. As we discussed previously, uh, many writers today think that's precisely the case. And let's say there were already European fishing operations off the coast of Newfoundland. Cabot would have no incentive on reporting that. He would want to be the one who got the claim uh, for the King of England for having found that land. Some speculate that Cabot was only making official what the sailors out of Bristol already knew. Perhaps these secret waters that the Bristol fishermen uh, went to were now under threat. Now that Columbus discovered the New World, perhaps the Iberian powers would move in. Perhaps the Bristol sailors wanted Cabot to bring it to the attention of the king that these lands exist and should be coming under crown protection. And these aren't just modern yahoos who believe these things. The preeminent historian Francis Parkman claimed that there were fisheries in Newfoundland long before Cabot came around. All conjecture nevertheless. After Cabot made a short single trip and returned back to England, the seed was planted for these epic colonial wars hundreds of years later. Now the question has to be asked, what did Cabot, or the English believe they discovered in the area that we now call Newfoundland and the North American coast. Those contemporary to Cabot seem to have believed that he discovered the northern portion of East Asia and perhaps were in the Great Khan's country. Again, remember, longitude was not easily measured at this time. In fact, basically wasn't measured at all. And Asia was already known for being immensely huge, impossibly huge to the European imagination. So it's quite possible that near the northern latitudes, the Asian continent might just stretch out as far as what we know now as the east coast of North America. And when Cabot ran into land there, he lacked the knowledge of knowing that there was a break. There was an ocean. Go out to Alaska, there's an ocean there, and then you're going to hit Russia. He didn't know that existed yet. As far as he knew, it was one massive continent. Cabot didn't gather much in terms of the richness of the New World that the Spanish would run into, the gold and silver mines, the massive empires to be conquered. But the King of England, nevertheless, authorized another expedition in May of 1498. But by July, one of his ships limps back into harbor. Apparently caught in a storm, all the other ships disappeared, including the one with John Cabot on it. And that is the end of the story of John Cabot. Now, much of the information we have about the man comes from his son, Sebastian, and there are many out there in his own time and now who believe that Sebastian was a bit of an exaggerator. In fact, he would live several more decades on the fame of his father, attaching himself to his father's accomplishments, and it kind of muddied the water as to what was true, what was untrue about the man and his expeditions. This would include him making maps at a much later date, claiming to be from information obtained by himself and his father on these expeditions that clearly showed later influence. And so he's not a very reliable narrator for the story of his father, or himself for that matter. And that's the really frustrating thing about this time in history. It comes right before the time where we have substantial documentation of even obscure, unimportant people. Last season on this show, we talked about Henry Hudson. We have basically no biographical information about the man, Uh, It's probably even worse for John Cabot. We have no portrait of him. We have no handwritten documents. At least none that are 100% official and authentic. And importantly, we don't know how his life ended, where it ended, the exact method. We can assume a storm and a shipwreck. And so, like so many other times on this show, I give you a completely unsatisfying ending. But this established the English claim. A claim that would have far more consequence than any claim that Spain or the Portuguese have. And so now we're going to transition into France. The whole point of this. How did New France begin? How did France become interested in the New World? Here we go. Today it would seem weird to think that the English would be no competition for the French. But at the beginning of the 16th century, England was small. France was quite large, several times the population of England proper. England at this time not in union with Scotland, not possessing much of Ireland. It was just England. It wasn't the United Kingdom that we know today. France being far larger and stable and powerful, you would expect them to be the ones to take off and take over these new lands. Especially when you compare them to their powers to the south on the Iberian continent. Spain, for instance, having just reconquered the, the, uh, the peninsula from the uh, Muslims. Spain had just barely been a united country, and in fact, we're still quite divided politically. And yet, what often held back France throughout this entire period moving forward is their own affairs. France was so big, so populated, so much territory to control on the continent, the European continent, that uh, affairs on the North American continent were nothing in comparison to their domestic problems. But before any official expeditions from the French crown to the New World or any place westward, there appears to have already been fishermen in the area from France. We uh, learned about the early French Basque, who were probably off the coast of Newfoundland uh, at the Grand Banks. It also seems likely that Breton and Norman fishermen were around Newfoundland as early as 1504. And there are two obscure explorers around the year 1506 and 1508, Thomas Aubert and Jean Denise, Based on maps from the time, it seems likely that one or both of those men even spotted the St. Lawrence Riverway, which is very important to this season of the show. And it would be a possible way westward for these explorers, who are always looking for a way to skip around everything else and get to China, get to India, get to Japan. Thomas Aubert, in fact, brought back natives he captured off the coast. A very common thing, unfortunately. And in 1509, had them put on display with their canoe and all the little trinkets they had with them. Which, of course, the French people found fascinating. Now, there's no record of what happened to these natives. Unfortunately, it's likely they died of diseases. Especially in these big French cities. All these communicable diseases that the native people had never experienced anywhere in their genetic history. Louis XII was so impressed with Albert, he gave him a commission to conquer new territories. And nothing much came of that. France, enveloped in its own problems, would lay low on the expedition side, exploration side of things, for several decades. But that didn't stop the fishermen from prying around the coastline. Beyond the fishermen in the north, there were privateers to the south, French privateers in New Spain, hopefully getting a hold of just one of those ships full of gold or silver that would make you rich for a lifetime. And in fact, it was the Spanish who had the greatest foothold in the New World, and were the main competitor to France getting into the game. Again, England barely on the radar. So moving beyond the opening decade of the 16th century, let's move into the reign of Francis I of France. I know, it sounds redundant, but that's his name. A strapping six-foot-tall man, which is reasonably tall today and very tall back then, had a large nose and a thick neck. His skin was light and pale, his eyes were often bloodshot. But he was charming. He had a way with the women, he was a bit of a philanderer, but was very learned, and supposedly had a perfect memory. He was a patron of the arts, supporting men like da Vinci. So, kind of a mixed bag here. Good guy, bad guy. Now Francis took issue with the Papal Bull and the Treaty of Tordesillas. And allegedly, he asked the Pope for a copy of Adam's will to show where exactly Adam left the entire outside world to Spain and Portugal. Adam, of course, being the first man in the Abrahamic religions. Now, the papacy at this time had been bogged down by Italian wars for a couple decades now. And Francis I was able to get a little leeway on that papal bull. And he basically argued, I'm going to explore the world, much as the Spanish and the Portuguese have done, and just like them, I'm going to help spread Catholicism. The great historian William Eccles said that Francis I rejected the papal bull and he claimed title to new lands that his explorers would find based on one discovery, two conquest, three occupation. What Francis essentially lays out is how all European powers will argue their claim over various lands in the new world. The man was ahead of his time and put the first crack in the hegemony of the Portuguese and the Spanish. And who would Francis I choose To begin the epic expansion of France overseas, he chose Giovanni de Verrazzano. Verrazzano, like so many uh, explorers at this time, would be called today in Italian. Of course, there was no Italian nation back then. But like Columbus and Cabot and all these other people we learned about, he found himself exploring for one of the powers uh, in Western Europe instead of one of the smaller nations making up Italy today. There's a slight possibility that Verrazzano had been in France for a long time. In fact, there's one document that mentions a crew manifest for Albert and his expedition in 1508. And one of the men mentioned, a captain of one of the other ships, secondary ships to Albert's, was a Jean Verrazzin. And so, with only that one shred of evidence, it's possible that Verrazzano had been in France for a very long time, had been to the New World for quite a while, and had a direct connection to this very first generation of obscure French explorers to the New World. Now, Verrazzano and Francis, just like Gomes, who we learned about earlier in this program, realized after Magellan's trip that there was seemingly no quick way to get around the Americas, as Magellan's was far to the south, very dangerous, and a very long trip, and then all the way up through what would be Brazil and New Spain, which at its furthest extent would make up what is today northern Florida, southern Georgia, there was no way further west. And so, if you wanted to find a way to Asia by going west, you'd have to look at the latitudes basically where Georgia is today in the United States and further north. Now, many of the port cities of Europe were controlled by Italian merchants, especially on the west coast of the continent. Uh, Such was the case for many of the ports in France. Now, originally, Verrazzano was being funded by Florentine merchants working out of these French ports. But Francis I got wind of an expedition, and he quickly sponsored uh, Verrazano himself. Verrazano, now funded by these merchants and the king himself, had tons of resources at his disposal. Originally, he left with four ships, but very quickly hit a storm, had to turn around, and only had one usable ship left. And by golly, in the year 1524, he said, I got one ship, I'm leaving. His ship was called the Dauphine, which means dolphin in France, also a nickname for the uh, prince who would become king. He had eight months worth of provisions. He had a crew of 50 men. The ship was about 100 tons. And in about 40 days, they spotted what people believed to be Cape Fear off the coast of North Carolina. Some scholars uh, put it a little further south in Georgia. But either way, Verrazano made very sure to stay clear of New Spain. So he went just north enough to start mapping the coastline without raising suspicion from Spain. Always on the watch for privateers. The authorities back in Europe and Spain proper were well aware of Verrazano's journeys. They had spies in every port. And they knew the provisions that were being uh, acquired and the men who were being hired. And they knew what Verrazzano was going off to do. Gomez, as we mentioned earlier, would be hot on Verrazzano's tail, making a similar journey within a year. And early into his mapping of the coastline, he came across these barrier islands off the outer banks of the Carolinas where these very thin islands would run north and south. But some of them are far enough offshore that you can't really spot the continent proper. So Verrazano, sailing by these, thought that the North American continent narrowed in the middle to the point of being only a mile or two thick. And this began a misconception that went on for decades, that the North American continent had some sort of uh, middle ocean, a Mediterranean of itself. When in fact, he just spotted a very thin island off the coast of the proper continent. And Verrazano explored the coastline of what is now the United States of America. He kept a short, brief, but very important record. He labeled Delaware, the area around Delaware, anywhere, anyway, Arcadia. Gomez, hot on his tail again, would label the same area Acadia. So Arcadia and Acadia can't be a coincidence that they had similar sounds. People have debated how they came to the same naming of the area. Did Gomis have some advanced information? Was the area previously explored by someone we have no documentation for? Did the natives have a word? for that area that both men interacted with and came up with a similar name or was it pure coincidence i don't know you figure it out i'm not a smart enough man to figure this one out for myself this name of course acadia will be used later for the area of northern maine and into what is now canada and acadia will be um turned into the word cajun eventually which of course relates to the uh people of french descent in louisiana who were expelled from Acadia proper. And so this very much is a story about the United States. This is another state of America. And to that end, Verrazano, he spots Manhattan Island. He's the first European we know of who finds it. He sees it. He names the area. He's at the the head of the Hudson River. Decades! Eighty-something years before Henry Hudson. The guy who they named the river after. It's a big deal. Going further up the coast... Verrazzano got off the ship and interacted with the Wampanoag, the natives whom the Pilgrims, supposedly the Pilgrims, the Separatists, would interact with almost 100 years later. And So Verizano has, Verizano has has beat the English to Manhattan Island and beat the Dutch to Manhattan Island to what will be New England, to what will be the Southern Colonies and all in the name of France, going further up the coast to the area of what is now Maine, He labeled this the land of the bad people. Now, the Abenaki up there did not interact well with Verrazano and his men. Whereas the Wampanoag were very friendly, the Abenaki were very weary. We know now, based on what we talked about earlier with the Portuguese, that it's likely the Portuguese were kidnapping people off the coast of Maine and what would become uh, today Nova Scotia, also formerly known as Acadia, and selling them into slavery. And so by the time Verrazzano gets there, they're very weary of Europeans. And so Verrazzano was probably wrong. They're probably not the bad people. They probably thought he was the bad people. And he may have been a bad person. Uh, For one thing, we're not exactly sure uh, the exact places he made landfall. But it is known that he kidnapped one native boy. Explorers would do this to bring them back to Europe, have them learn the European languages, and then be able to return with a translator. Uh, Also, they wanted to bring tangible proof that they did, in fact, reach a new land or any land at all. You leave with so many people and you come back with so many new people. That's proof you hit somewhere. And based on this uh, friendly, unfriendly native uh, dichotomy here, we can say that Verrazano probably hit some parts of what would now be the mid-Atlantic and the southern Atlantic portion of the United States that Europeans had never been to before. The historian Lawrence Roth brings up a great point. That Verrazano made his way back to France, and this entire time he had one ship. He explored the coastline, where the water is shallow, and there are reefs and rocks and shoals, all unmapped. There's no pre-existing maps to go off of. Now, we've heard of explorers who leave with five ships, six ships, and they are still missing. We still don't know what happened to them. Verrazano made this entire trip with one ship. But wouldn't you know it, Verrazano was a failure. Think about it. Did he discover a a passage west? No. No. Did he discover a Northwest Passage? No. Did he discover empires that could be conquered? Large cities? No. Gold, silver? No. And this might have been the reason why his account of his journey was so sparse, because it didn't seem very significant at the time. Of course, us listening to this podcast, many of you Americans are going, wow, this guy's describing Delaware, New York Harbor, Massachusetts. He's up in Maine. This guy is is giving us a glimpse into America for the first time in documentation. Very important to us today. But to him, it was just a land empty of opportunity. And despite his big mistake of thinking that the middle of North America narrowed into a huge body of water, he realized a couple things. He knew that he wasn't in Asia. He recognized that the climates of North America and Europe were different even at the same latitudes. North America was noticeably colder. I mean, where I live today is at the same latitude as just about northern Spain. But I do not have the climate of northern Spain. I'd like it, but I don't. For historians, Verrazano's account is invaluable, of course. It gives us a first glimpse into a lot of different areas of what is now the United States. Verrazano also, despite having a central ocean, uh, surmised that North America was probably larger than previous maps indicated often showing Nova Scotia and what would be Newfoundland and then kind of everything else just a mysterious little bit of nothing a chain of islands perhaps North America was a genuine continent Verrazano realized that and most important to this podcast on his map a huge chunk of what is now the United States of America he labeled in Latin and I'm going to mess this up Nova Gallia which, of course, Gaul, being an ancient part of the Roman Empire, the Gauls being conquered by Julius Caesar, is what is now the nation of France, the territory controlled by France. And so in Latin, he labeled, this is now a huge chunk of the United States, New France. I told you New France was part of the story of the United States. I told you it was an other state of America. Did you believe me? You better. I mean, if you're listening to me right now, you believe me. And just to finish up this episode, we know what happened to Verrazano. So many explorers in this episode have just disappeared into the mists, into the waters, onto the land. We don't know. But in 1528, just a couple years afterwards, Verrazano was on an expedition to the Caribbean, probably within the domain of New Spain. Coming to an island, he saw natives on the shore. He took a small boat from his ship to reach them. What happened next, his brother witnessed... From the main ship. Once he reached the shores, the natives seized him and murdered him. And right there on the beach, the natives cooked and ate him while his brother looked on helplessly.